0: Jesus, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to receive from your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, God, would be pleasing to you and acceptable. And I pray that above all that we would see, Jesus, that you are the cornerstone and that though in the eyes of our flesh, you are a rejected cornerstone in our spirit, we see that you are the foundation of all that we have, and you are the foundation of our redemption. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would make us attentive to your scriptures, and that you would change us into the image of your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Jared Grice. I'm the music director here at the church. Uh, If you don't know me, and it's a pleasure for me to be here to uh, share from God's word this morning. So I want to start with a question. We're going to be primarily looking at the the Matthew passage, the parable of the tenants. But I want to ask have you, have you ever dealt with someone or something that was immovable? Something that felt unstoppable? Like no matter what you tried to do or how much you tried to get in the way of this thing, it wasn't stopping. So I promise I'm not going to share a football metaphor because of the great win yesterday, but. I shouldn't say that at the beginning of the sermon. (laughs) Now you're not gonna listen. Um, But I wanna share a story with you uh, of of a time when I encountered someone that was immovable. So I played football in high school. Believe it or not, um, I was about 40 pounds heavier. So I was a lineman and um, I was the center. So the guy who snapped the ball. And there was a bit of a legacy in my hometown in in Southwest Oklahoma um, where we had just come off of five state championship wins, and it was kind of a record in our town, and the whole town had a lot of pressure that was put on the team and on the coaches to perform. And so, you know, I had been working really hard. I'd been playing football ever since Pee Wee, and I finally get up into high school, and it's the beginning of my junior year, and I'm finally able to start at the position of center. And I'd been working hard. I felt pretty confident. I felt like, you know, I had put in the blood, sweat, and tears to get to where I was and it was the first day of practice in August with full pads. It's the best day of the year. Full pads, we get to hit each other. It's great. And so I'm lining up and, you know, starting offense is up against the practice team defense. And there's this kid that's about five foot four, maybe a buck 40, a buck 50. He's not very big. His name is Garrett Edwards. Um, and Garrett lines up across at nose guard. Garrett is a freshman. And so I'm thinking to myself, this is my chance to show this kid what's up he's up against me. I've been working so hard to get here, right? And so Garrett's lined up right across from me, and I'm thinking, he's not a threat. He's small. It's fine. And so we call the play, and the next thing I know, I'm flat on my back because Garrett ran straight through me like a knife through butter, like I was nothing. And I'm thinking, what just happened? And the coaches are yelling at me. They're saying, Grice, get up. What's wrong with you? And I'm thinking, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what just happened. And so We go back to the next play. I get on the ball again and I'm thinking, okay, I let him have his one. Now it's time for me to show him what's up. And it happened again. And he put me on my back. And that happened play after play after play to the point that the coaches got so frustrated with me, they took me out and they put the second string guy in. And I'm thinking, this can't be happening. And so this happened practice after practice. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to stop being a prideful jerk. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to go to Garrett after practice, and I'm going to say, Garrett, what's going on? So I approach him, and the first question I ask him, and just keep in mind, Garrett is a slow processor. I said, Garrett, what's going on in your mind when you're lined up across from me? What are you thinking? What's going on through your head? And he stops, and he looks up, and he goes, you're in my way. (laughs) And I'm like... Okay, Um, not helpful. Let's try that again. I said, "Okay, Garrett, I want to improve. We're on the same team. You want me to be better. I want you to be better. How can I get better at blocking you?" Again, he looks up and he thinks, and he said, "Get out of my way." And I'm like, "That that's not helpful, right?" But the reason I share that story is because what we are going to see in today's scripture, in the Matthew passage in particular is that God's plan of redemption, even though he encounters obstacles, enemies, things that get in the way, God's plan of redemption is absolutely immovable. But what we will also see in today's passage that just like Garrett, who I thought was not an issue at all, God's plan is also unlikely. The way God achieves his plan of redemption, it is immovable, but it's done in an unlikely way, as we'll see through weakness and through rejection. Isaiah chapter 14 says, the Lord Almighty has purposed, he has planned, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? The answer to that question is no one, because the plan of God is immovable. But Before we jump into the specifics of this parable of the tenants, it's important for us to step back and kind of have a broader picture of what's happening in Matthew chapter 21 in particular. In a big way, this parable is, it's a parable that is proposing to us two different ways to approach Christ, two different ways of approaching Christ and two different manners of power, so to speak. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, we see something really remarkable. It's something that all of us um, have rehearsed over and over and over, and it's the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes in as a king. But what is shocking about this scene is that in every sense of the word, Christ is not coming in as the strong, powerful military king. Even though waving palm branches was a sign of military victory, the people were expecting that. But no, Christ comes in riding on a donkey. Not only a donkey, but the foal of a donkey. He comes in in this shocking scene of humility and weakness. And just to to really understand how shocking and how contrasting this image of weakness would have been, David Garland at Truett Seminary, he he, he talks about what it would have looked like for Caesar to come into the city. What kind of parade, what kind of entry would it have looked like for Roman officials or, or even the Caesar to come in? And here's what he says. He says, first of all, there would be the spoils of war. There would be trophies and treasures and pictures and maps of cities of the lands that had been conquered. Then there would be behind that, the prisoners of war in shackles and in chains. Then there would be the lictors, the Roman officials who guarded the magistrates and executed the criminals, these powerful military people. Then Caesar himself rode in on a chariot that was pulled by three white horses. Behind him, there would be a priest that was offering up white bulls to the God of Jupiter. And then finally, this would have been followed by all kinds of spectacular events, circuses and gladiators and pageantry. He came in in an absolute spectacle. Now compare that to the weakness of the entry of Jesus. And this is the beginning of Matthew chapter 21. So this is what we're leading into. So we have this image of weakness, but even though Christ's entry is decidedly otherwise than what we would expect, that's not where it ends. Because then the very next scene after he enters into the city is he goes in and he wrecks shop in the temple. He cleanses the temple. One of my favorite stories to tell my freshmen at the school is, did you know that Jesus flipped over tables and made a whip? And they're like, what? Jesus did that? Right? But we we see that there is this entry into the city of weakness, of surprising humility, but then there is this authority And so these two opposing images of Christ and this entire chapter in Matthew 21 is almost as though Jesus is laying out for us his resume. He's saying, this is who I am. This is the authority that I have. And the question that we are left with is how are we gonna respond? What will our response to Jesus be? In our own culture, we have a pretty distorted view of what power is. Similar to the people in the first century who expected Jesus to come in with military might, we identify power with control, with the ability to get people to do what we want or to be winsome or the ability to move forward our own agenda. But this is quite the opposite of the kind of power that Jesus displayed. His power was demonstrated in weakness. And as we will see in today's passage, it was demonstrated in his willingness to submit to suffering and rejection. This is the kind of power that is humble, but that is also unequivocally secure. A power that knows that regardless of what would come to pass, God's kingdom would still be brought. And as we read this parable today, we have to understand who we are in the story. As Father Rosemary said a few weeks back, it's really easy for us to hear these parables and to point the finger at the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And that's who this parable was addressed to. But we have to understand that we are the tenants in this parable. We are not the servants. We certainly aren't the son, and we certainly aren't the owner. We are, in fact, the tenants who have rejected the son. I remember the first time Morgan and I attended a um, kind of liturgical high church service we went to Church of the Incarnation and we went to their Good Friday service. I mean, that, that's a, a heck of an inauguration into the Anglican church. Um, but we went to their Good Friday service and I will never forget the moment where the congregation altogether says, crucify him. That was powerful because in that moment, we can't point the finger at the people who crucified Jesus. We have to point the finger back at ourselves. So in this story, we need to situate ourselves in the place of the tenants. In today's passage, Jesus is issuing a challenge to us. Much like Mark shared a few weeks back when he preached, the wind can either be behind our sails and propel us forward, or it can be against us and destroy us. We will either build our foundation on the cornerstone or we will be broken by it. This passage is a warning for us to bear fruit but it's not it's not just a behavioral call to action it's the proclamation that regardless of murder or rejection or plotting to overthrow the hand of God there is nothing that will stop God's movement forward and we can either choose to be against it or to be on board with it and so as we prepare to jump into the text today Let's start in Matthew twenty-one, beginning to read at verse thirty-three. Jesus says, Here another parable: there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it out to tenants, and then the owner went into another country. When it was time to draw fruit, when the season to draw fruit was near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. The tenants then took the servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, the owner sent his son, saying to himself, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. And so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks the religious leaders, what will he do to those tenants? And they aptly said, he's going to put those wretches out to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? We'll stop there. Today's sermon really has two simple points. The first is the unlikely shape of God's redemption. One of the most shocking things about this story, when I was reading it, I was, I was trying to read it as if I'm hearing it for the first time, is how the story actually ends. There's this cliffhanger that Jesus leaves us with. It's meant to be surprising and shocking. As we hear this story, I, I keep wanting the owner to send his son and the son to put these people in their place, and for the, the tenants to apologize and to pay up, right? We want justice, but instead, what happens is that they kill the son. They plot to steal his inheritance. This parable reminds us that God's plan of redemption, the way God gets things done, is unlikely and it is shocking it turns our expectation on its head. What we expect justice to look like happens very differently. The servants in the story are the prophets that were sent over and over to the people of God to call them back and the people of God instead rejected them. You see, God doesn't achieve redemption through power and through might in the way that we might expect, but instead it is through the rejection of the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. And look, I know a lot of us, if we've grown up in the church, have heard this time and time again, that God sent his son to die for us, and it's this beautiful reality that Christ would give up his life, and by giving up his life, he gives us newness of life. We know this. We hear this. Yet, I think sometimes we forget to be shocked by it. Consider the cross, for example. D.A. Carson says this, I believe we have the quote to put on the screen. He says, "'The cross has become for us such a domesticated symbol. "'Today many men and women dangle crosses from their ears. "'Our bishops hang crosses around their necks. "'Our church buildings have crosses on their spires, "'or stained wooden crosses are backlit "'with fluorescent lights. "'Some of our older church buildings "'are actually built in cruciform, yet no one is shocked.'" You see, we we wear this Roman crucifixion device around our neck like it's jewelry. We have this proclamation that God saves us in an unlikely and in a shocking way, though we still live like worldly power is how we get it done. We identify with a crucified Christ lifted in scorn, but we build our lives around wealth and status and esteem and self-promotion. We worship a suffering savior but we design our everyday lives around the avoidance of pain. We pray to a humble Lord, but we vie for influence and pride at every turn. We try to defend ourselves and cover our mistakes and and act like our resume is the most important thing that we have. We've not only domesticated the cross, but we've actually domesticated the way that God brings his kingdom into this world. But what this parable teaches us is that This domestication and this indifference toward God's plan is nothing new. The tenants have rejected the prophets throughout the story. They were rejected from the beginning. And I think, if we're honest, it can be overwhelming to feel like this is just the story that keeps getting repeated over and over. It can feel like this narrative never changes. I can only imagine the desperation that people like Jeremiah or Isaiah or these other prophets felt The hopelessness that came with feeling like, how many times do we have to keep calling the people back and keep being rejected? Is God really gonna do something about the brokenness of this world? Will he really change it? Why does it have to be this way over and over? And maybe you feel the same way at times in your life. How many servants have to be sacrificed? How long, O Lord, will this same tendency in our own hearts be prominent? These are the questions the prophets were asking. And I think this is, these are the kinds of questions that Jesus was entering into. These are questions that as Christians, we can't be afraid to lean into. Christ wasn't afraid to confront it. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge it. And we have to acknowledge that in God's unlikely plan of redemption, we don't get to the resurrection without first going through the cross. We can't bypass suffering. We can't sidestep the means by which God brings wholeness into this world. It is through the rejection of the cornerstone that we are redeemed. It is through the scars of our Savior that we are healed. It is through his scorn that we are elevated. And it is through the cross that we are raised with him in newness of life. And even though the world that we live in, and the same world that rejected the prophets and rejected the Son, even though this world is constantly trying to locker us into chasing power and control and manipulating God and trying to make redemption for ourselves, the unlikely shape of Christ's redemption is that through this kind of pain, through the cross is the only way to redemption, the only way into God's kingdom. This is why in this parable, previously, whenever Jesus is is talking about the parable of the two sons, he says, the people who will enter the kingdom first are actually the prostitutes and the tax collectors because they have just accepted the fact that this is by the son, by the rejection, by this means of being outcasted. This is how we enter into the kingdom of God. The, the last will be first. But here is the good news. Yes, God's plan of redemption is unlikely. It is shocking and it is oftentimes a hard pill to swallow. It is also unyielding. It is immovable. It is immovable. So in verse 42, here's what it says. Jesus said, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this is the part that I love. He says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Some people say, and and some theologians and historians believe that Jesus may not have actually been a carpenter, but that he may have been a stonemason because a lot of his allusions and a lot of his parables and stories come from stonemasonry rather than carpentry. Either way, we know that Jesus was familiar with the work of a mason. See, what would happen is before a mason would build a house, they would look for the supplies that they needed one of those supplies that they needed a lot of were stones. They would examine each of the stones. They would make sure that these stones were perfectly sized and perfectly fit. And just like Michelangelo or other architects or artists, if the stones didn't meet their expectations, they would throw them on the trash heap. They would discard of them. They were thrown to the side. They would reject them. And this passage, which is a quote from, from Psalms, says that the stone that the builders have rejected, that stone that's on the trash heap over there, that is the stone that will become the cornerstone of the foundation of God's kingdom. Christ is that rejected stone, the stone that was thrown to the wayside because it didn't fit our expectations, because it didn't meet what we thought he should be. But in verse 42, it says, how marvelous is this in our eyes. From Psalm 118 is where this this passage is taken. And it speaks to the fact that the very rejection of Christ is how God builds his kingdom. There is no stopping God. As we read in the Isaiah passage at the beginning, there is no thwarting what God has set out to do. You see, when, when Christ was rejected, when the son was rejected, God didn't call an audible. He wasn't shocked He didn't come up with a plan B. This was actually his plan all along. And what this means for us is that we can fight for control. We can try to defend our own kingdoms with all of the vigor and all of the the cunning that we have, but God's kingdom is coming. We can despair and we can give in to hopelessness and we can believe that nothing will ever change, but God's kingdom is coming. We can destroy the people of God, and we can shut the mouths of the prophets of God, and we can even slaughter the servants of the king, but God's kingdom is coming. We can crucify the son, we can humiliate the disciples, we can wage war against the campaign of God, but God's kingdom is coming. Regardless of what the enemy does, regardless of what the world does to cover our eyes and to cause us to despair. The kingdom of God is here and it is coming in fullness. There is no stopping it. That means our sin, also our pain, our denial, our doubt, our blindness, our running, our attempts at manipulating God and using Jesus for the way we want him to be used, none of this is a threat to him. It is the very rejection of, of Christ, in the death of Christ crucified, that the powers of hell are embarrassed and are exhausted. And yes, this rejection was surprising to us, but it was no surprise to God. This was the best news of all, that this was God's plan. The cornerstone was rejected, but God's hands were not tied and they still are not tied. So when we are broken, when we can't see, when we can't make sense of what is ahead of us, we can take heart knowing that God's kingdom is coming and that when we endure as citizens of that kingdom through difficulty, through trial, through the same kinds of rejection that Christ said we would face, we can endure knowing that we have the promise of a vineyard that will produce fruit. And so to close today, I think the the challenge in this parable is that we have a choice. Wherever we sit, as followers of Christ, as skeptics, as those who don't know where we are, we have a choice. This parable is not calling us to try to do more or be better or get our lives together by acting right. This parable is calling us to clear the sleep from our eyes and to pay attention. When we first moved into our house a year and a half ago, um, it was the terrible, miserable summer last year, which this summer probably rivaled it, honestly. Um, But we were wanting to do some landscaping and we were wanting to plant a bunch of stuff. And I remember I was in the front yard and I was, you know, I was kind of going crazy with this new shovel that I got. I was digging holes everywhere. I was planting stuff. I was so excited. And I went out one day when it was really hot and we got some plants. I don't even remember what it was, but I was going to plant it in our front yard, some bush or some tree or something. And I had this, this shovel and I was going out and I'm trying to dig into the ground, right? And I'm, And I'm digging and it's just not moving. Like I could get the grass, the dead grass up, but I couldn't get the dirt up. Nothing was working. And so I just keep digging harder and harder and I'm breaking a sweat and I probably said some words I'm not proud of and my neighbors probably thought I was a little crazy, but I'm just, I'm determined. I'm like, no, I will exert my power over this ground and I will break this ground. And I keep going and I keep going and nothing's really working because I feel like I've just hit this like hard spot. So what do I do? I should have given up or I should have tried to like get the ground wet or something. But instead, I get the shovel, I wedge it in there and I go, I'm gonna jump on this shovel as hard as I possibly can. (laughs) You know how this probably ends. I leap way in the air, I jump on the shovel and I break that shovel. It breaks like at the head. But what I discovered was why I broke it. And it wasn't just because the ground was dry. It was because two inches down below, there was a massive cinder block. So I jumped with all of my, I'm not going to tell you my weight, all of my weight onto that shovel, and it broke because I hit a cinder block. You see, what Christ is saying here is that the way we approach him, the challenge to us is that the way we approach him makes a difference. If we try and approach Christ using worldly power to get him to do what we want or to even get him out of the way because the son and the servants, they're keeping us from getting the fruit in that vineyard that we want. If we approach Christ that way, Jesus says, we will be broken by the cornerstone. We will be broken by that stone. And the irony of this parable is that, what was it that the tenants wanted? They weren't just bloodthirsty. They didn't just wanna kill the servants and kill the son. The tenants wanted the fruit. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted what the vineyard was meant to give them. But the problem was that they short-circuited the process. Rather than being obedient, rather than being submissive, rather than, than submitting themselves to the long, patient process of producing fruit the way the owner intended, they said, let's get these pesky people out of the way and let's do it the way we want to do it. And we have a similar choice. We can submit to God's kingdom, to the upside down way that God does things, regardless of how much it hurts, regardless of the struggle, regardless of how much the world may mock us and tell us we are fools. Or we can short circuit the process. We can take that shovel and try to break it through a cinder block. But what Jesus tells us is that that will actually become fruitless. We can either be sheltered by the cornerstone or we can be shattered by it. And so, to use the Philippians passage that we read this morning, we have to remember that the hope is not in our ability to power our way into Christ's approval. It's not in our ability to make our own way through control or wealth or influence or ability or just getting God out of the way because he's so inconvenient. It's as Paul says, starting in verse 17, he says, Brothers, Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Those are the ones like me who are breaking their shovel on the stone. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It is the power in Christ that even though he is rejected by men, he has the power to subject all things to himself. And as we embrace this upside down way of Christ's kingdom, the promise is that we will bear fruit, but we're not gonna bear fruit by taking it. And we're not gonna bear fruit by getting God out of the way to make a way for ourselves, but we will bear fruit by receiving it as we are about to do at the table with open hands, willing to submit to the cornerstone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our cornerstone, that though we, just like the religious leaders in this parable, just like those in in centuries past who rejected your servants, we have rejected you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would make us humble and that you would show us that you want to bring us into your vineyard, to your kingdom, but that the way into the kingdom is by the cross, and it's by embracing our suffering Savior who was willing to be rejected so that he might build his kingdom by that rejected stone. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would make us humble. I pray that you would make us receptive, and I pray that you would show us day after day that your way is the better way. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.